from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Uh, and then that had led me to where I was with, with suicidal thoughts. And so I tell him all this and he asked me, well, do you have like a particularly stressful career or something? And I say, well, I'm, I'm in politics. And he's asked what that meant. And so I kind of briefly explained like, well, I was going to run for president earlier this year, but then I decided to run for mayor, but I'm going to call that off tomorrow so I can get help here. And he just looked really confused. And he's like, president of what? <laughs> and uh, I said, of, of the United States. Now you got to remember this guy is looking at somebody in, you know, they've taken away all my belongings. I'm sitting there in scrubs that don't fit. Uh, and I've got like my arms wrapped around my knees. Uh, and I'm this 37 year old patient in the suicide hold explaining that I was a presidential candidate earlier in the year. Former Missouri Secretary of State Jason Kander rose quickly in state and national politics. He narrowly lost the 2016 U.S. Senate race to Roy Blunt. Two years later, he took himself out of the electoral arena to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression that stemmed from his military service in Afghanistan. Kander's new book details the Democrats' political and personal journey in vivid detail. It's titled Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Kander recently spoke with St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum about how he decided to get help and how that decision saved his life. For more, here's Jason. Jason, in 2018, you shocked a lot of people by pulling out of the Kansas City mayor's race to get treatment for your PTSD and depression. Can you tell me what happened when you checked yourself into a Veterans Administration facility to get help? So that was the day before I made my announcement that I was stepping back from public life to go to the VA to get help. Uh, I actually first went to the VA to get help, and I ended up uh, in the ER, in the suicide hold room, uh, because I had indicated that I was having suicidal thoughts. And along the way, as I was being processed, I kept noticing that everybody was recognizing me. Nobody was like asking for selfies or anything, but you can tell when people kind of do a double take, which usually was not a problem. I mean, as a politician, oftentimes that's kind of the goal. Uh, that's how you get people to vote for you. They got to know who you are first. Uh, but when you are checking into the suicide hold in the emergency room at the VA, it's, it's not like the ideal place to have everybody recognize you. So it was kind of mortifying until this guy came in to see me and was the first person who really didn't seem to know who I was. And at first, that was like a big relief. Uh, and then uh, over the course of the next 30 minutes, he proceeds to ask me questions about my symptoms. And I explained that over the last 10 years or so, I had been having everything from, you know, night terrors uh, to feeling like I was in danger all the time, like my family was in danger all the time. And that had grown into sort of a self-loathing and an inability to feel any sort of joy and eventually depression. Uh, and then that had led me to where I was with, with suicidal thoughts. And so I tell him all this and he asked me, well, do you have like a particularly stressful career or something? And I say, well, I'm, I'm in politics. And he's asked what that meant. And so I kind of briefly explained like, well, I was going to run for president earlier this year, but then I decided to run for mayor, but I'm going to call that off tomorrow so I can get help here. And he just looked really confused. And he's like, president of what? <laughs> and uh, I said, of, of the United States. Now, you got to remember, this guy is looking at somebody in, you know, 
they've taken away all my belongings. I'm sitting there in scrubs that don't fit. Uh, and I've got like my arms wrapped around my knees. Uh, and I'm this 37 year old patient in the suicide hold explaining that I was a presidential candidate earlier in the year. And he looked a little skeptical. And, uh, and then he eventually asked me, he said, well, who, who told you you could run for president? And by this point, I've gone from feeling mortified that other people are recognizing me to just kind of irritated that this guy didn't believe me. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I don't know what to tell you, man. I spent an hour and a half with Obama, just me and him in his office, and he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And then uh, this young psych resident uh, thought about that for a second and then asked me, so how often would you say you hear voices? <laughs> I have to admit, when I read that, I literally laughed out loud. That was a very good way to to start this book. But Thanks. I think at its core, the question that I had from reading it was, why was succeeding in politics for you so vital instead of getting help for your PTSD and depression? Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you got to go in reverse with the question, right? I mean, first of all, uh, I spent most of that 11 years not admitting to myself that I had PTSD. Um, because the army had trained me like it trains everybody else to believe that whatever I had been doing in the military was no big deal. And they do that on purpose and it's necessary. I don't fault the army for that because if you don't make everybody believe that what they're doing is no big deal, uh, well then they're not going to go do dangerous things over and over again. I was not going to keep going back into rooms to gather intelligence, uh, from people who might want to kill me with, virtually no backup and nobody knowing where I was, uh, if I was of the belief that that was unique. Uh, I, if I had bitten from that tree of knowledge, I don't know if I could have done the job. So, you know, they trained me like they trained everybody else to believe, you know, it's no big deal. Somebody else has it worse. But the problem is that when you get out of the service, at least in my case, nobody flips that switch off. Nobody sits you down and says, actually, that was pretty crazy. Uh, and you might, you might need to see somebody because that, that might affect you. Um, and so as a result, I, all those years that I was having all those symptoms, I was still of the belief and of the understanding that what I had done was no big deal. So there's no way it could be PTSD. I hadn't earned PTSD. Um, and, and so that was part of it. And then what I didn't know at the time was that while I was in politics because I, I care about my state and my country and I came from a public service oriented background, I think the reason, I know the reason that I drove myself as hard as I did was because I was looking for some sort of redemption. I, I was of the belief that, you know, if I could just achieve some heroic change in the world, then that would fill me up and I would feel better. And also because I didn't want to be alone with my own intrusive thoughts. It was not pleasant for me to be, uh, you know, in the present and mindful. Um, there wasn't it wasn't a pleasant place up in my up in my mind. And so if I could stay really busy, uh, then I could avoid that. There's a really striking pas passage in the book about how you were terrible to be around and you went to bed angry and woke up angry and was impervious to good news and virtually impossible to cheer up. You yelled at your wife, Diana. You snapped at staff. So it seemed like it not only affected your family life, but it also affected how you navigated through politics, especially in 2018. Yeah, um, that passage is from the part of the book where we get really near my actually stepping away because, uh, so that was after I had decided not to run for president and had started running for mayor. And the mayoral campaign, you know, in every objective way, the campaign was going great, right? I mean, we were going to win and it 
probably wasn't going to be close, which sounds like bragging. But look, if you're going to run for president and you decide to run for mayor instead, like you really ought to be the front runner or what were you doing in the first place? Right. And and so that's where we were. And up until that point, you know, my wife had seen this other side of me that uh, was struggling, but I had rarely ever, you know, yelled at her or anything like that. I mean, I was never violent or anything, but I had I had never uh, you know, I had never been like that at home, uh, really to that degree. And what I had definitely never done is snapped at staff or anything like that. I mean, the hardest part for Diana, for my wife, there were a lot of hard parts of it, I think, were that, uh, you know, the, she was really the only, ver- she was the only person who had seen that version of me much at all over, over the years. But now it was getting worse and it was getting worse faster. And so it was bleeding out, uh, you know, outside of my house, uh, and and it was affecting the way I was behaving elsewhere as well, um, and so that was in the the final months before I decided to get help, uh, and it was also it coincided with um, me increasingly having suicidal thoughts, um, and that ultimately is what drove me to get help was a feeling that uh, I, I was frightened by it, and I I didn't want to want to die, uh, and ultimately that's what got me to call the Veterans Crisis Line. Can you describe how you felt in the immediate aftermath of pulling out of the Kansas City mayor's race and disclosing that you were going to get help for PTSD and depression? Because from reading the book, it wasn't really an immediate sense of catharsis. Like there was a long process before you got to the point where you are today. Oh, for sure. Um, Look, therapy is work. Um, and, And when I when I made my announcement and I talked to my, I actually had a conversation with my great uncle where he said to me, uh, he said, therapy is getting a master's degree in yourself. And that was a, a perfect description because, um, you know, really all that happened when I, when I announced, okay, I'm going to stop everything and I'm going to go get help. I went from being somebody who was scheduled every minute of every day, which I had been for about 10 years, um, to, there was nothing on my calendar except a weekly therapy session. And what that meant was that I was left with these intrusive thoughts uh, and I had nothing to distract myself from them. Combined with, I was still just racked with depression. And, uh, you know, I I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with the rest of my life. (laughs) And, And on top of that, um, as, uh, as great as it was, as encouraging as it was that it seemed like literally the entire country from, you know, like the leaders of both political parties in this country, leaders of parties in other nations, like everybody was issuing these public statements of support of me and, and, you know, some were calling me about it and everything that was encouraging, but it also made me feel like the entire world was just pitying me and it, and it, it's hard not to even like when you're having a good moment, right? Like maybe maybe you're 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 not thinking about your future and you're not thinking about your more traumatic memories from your past. You're just like picking out avocados at the grocery store, going about your day. It it's it can affect your mindset when you feel like the whole world thinks you are, as I put it in the book, you know, the smoking crater where Jason Kander fell back to earth and just assumes you're you know, in a fetal position in a corner somewhere. And, and so it was confusing. And, uh, and what it allowed me to do was to really focus on my treatment. And so I I went to therapy, I, I did the work, and then I did the rather extensive homework that I was given uh, in between. And I get into all of that in great detail in the book, because I want people to 
be able to visualize what trauma therapy is because I think if they can visualize it and they can see it, it might be a lot less daunting and they might be a lot more likely to undertake it. We're talking with Jason Kander, a former Missouri Secretary of State and author of the new book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. So I'm a Missouri political reporter. I think we've known each other since 2007, even before you ran for state representative or while you were running for state representative. And one of the things I really loved about this book is how you explain how you navigated through the Missouri political world. Like, I think for the layman, they only hear about Missouri politics when something really bad happens or something really unusual happens. But this is actually an exploration of kind of the banal intricacies of this ecosystem, like running for office, standing out amongst your peers, dealing with like competitors. What was your general feeling about what it's like to be in Missouri politics? Well, you know, the thing about my perspective on it was that for me, and and for me, the book is, it's a mental health memoir uh, about a guy, me, who happened to be navigating Missouri politics and then navigating national politics and then pursuing the presidency, you know, just a standard coming of age tale, (laughs) but uh, while secretly battling this psychological disorder. But so for me, I think, you know, my early stage in, in Missouri politics was colored a lot by a real strong sense of righteous indignation that I had. Uh, and and some of that was due to trauma, right? I mean, it was coming from Afghanistan, feeling as though, uh, you know, there were decisions that were made by politicians while I was there that, that negatively affected our mission and, and put us in danger. And then coming home and seeing, you know, in 2007, things like Medicaid cuts and feeling like there was a direct through line between how those kind of decisions got made, which all of that is normal and would make perfect sense. What you have to add on top of that for me was that I, unknowingly at the time, was using a low level of simmering anger within myself to try to control the situation around me because I had learned in Afghanistan uh, and hadn't really unlearned for many years that if I didn't control everything around me, I would die. Um, and so that meant that when I got to the state legislature, people who disagreed with me or people who didn't feel that things like campaign reform or ethics reform or lobbying reform were important or felt that it was more important that they that the speaker not take away their committee assignment or their parking spot than that they do the right thing, I just couldn't. I couldn't stomach that stuff. And I don't mean I couldn't stomach it in like a, I was the one person of virtue. I mean, like, I genuinely believed I was the righteous sword of, you know, the flame of of legislation. And anybody who stood in my way was just a a villain. And, and it, it, you know, I believed, for instance, that at that moment, that every Republican I encountered was Donald Rumsfeld until proven otherwise. And Mm. so it, it made it kind of difficult to forge consensus. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and, and I mean, you, you kind of talk about this, about how some of this anger you, you, you alluded to, like bled into like your first campaign when you're running for a state house seat. Now, look, I think serving in the Missouri legislature is great and glamorous and all, all whatnot. But I don't know how glamorous. You really but... <laughs> describe in this. You, I, I may be a little bit facetious <laughs> yeah. there, but like you, you, you talk about like running for this state house seat in this heavily democratic area, like you are running for president of the United States, even though you're going to be serving in the super minority and making like thirty five thousand dollars a year and unable to do 
very much without the help of Republicans. But can you explain, though, like how some of your trauma and your PTSD and your mental health issues like kind of drove you to this ferocity that on the, on the surface from reading this doesn't seem like a normal way to approach a political campaign of this magnitude? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I think, you know, it's not uncommon for trauma survivors to constantly feel that they have to seek some sort of redemption, that they're unworthy. I've learned that now. And I was experiencing a lot of that. But I also think that that is combined with this uh, sort of myth that exists in American culture and is rather pervasive, which is this idea that the way to overcome trauma uh, is through acts of heroic redemption. I mean, Look, I love the Top Gun movies, uh, both of them. I've seen them. I'm going to go see the second one again. Um, but, like, let's be real. Like, in the first movie, and it's colored through the second movie as well, like, Maverick experiences a very serious trauma. And what he's told is, like, you just got to get back in the in the cockpit. And then he does, and he wins a couple of dogfights, and everything's fine. And that's pretty well the normal way that... Americans have told the story of trauma for a really long time. It's not necessarily how other cultures do it, but it's how we do it. And like a lot of people, I bought into that. And so I think a lot of my striving was this idea that if I could just make this difference, if I could just win this race, if I could just, you know, uh, blow out this fundraising quarter, get the poll numbers to be this, that, you know, I just kept telling myself this lie that I'll feel better when I'll feel better when this happens, I'll feel better when that happens. So then, you know, when I'm, I first come home, and I'm running for state representative, and I'm running in a primary against two people who are perfectly lovely people, by the way, uh, I felt like, you know, I was on this mission, this continuation of my mission overseas. And I had to go seek redemption. Because I had friends who had been hurt physically, I hadn't been hurt physically, I had friends who were still over there, I wasn't. Uh, I had only done the one deployment and it had only been four months and I just felt I hadn't done enough. And it turns out most veterans feel they hadn't done enough. But so that's why, you know, even when I knew I was probably winning that race, I didn't stop. Uh, in fact, I lost 15 pounds during that race and didn't sleep the whole time. Ended up winning a three-way race with 68% of the vote. Thought, well, that's going to make me feel better. And that lasted a couple of days. And then, you know, the insomnia and everything came right back. And then it became, well, I have to do something truly transcendent in the state legislature. And it's just, it was it was always a goalpost to move. Is this book a precursor to the long-awaited Jason Kander comeback that all of us continually ask you about? <laughs> no, it's definitely not. And, um, and that's because uh, I don't, look, my life is right where I want it to be right now. Um, I'm coaching little league and hanging out with my wife and my daughter and my son. And I'm, and I'm even, I'm playing baseball again. And, you know, on a, on a adult, not softball, but like baseball team. And I love it. And I, and I have a job at veterans community project that is truly meaningful and that I love doing. And I'm, I'm getting to grow it across the country, including in St. Louis. Um, so no, it's not. Uh, and in fact, like, let's be real. Like, there's stuff in this book that like, look, if I were to run for office tomorrow, uh, people would use stuff from this book and say like, this guy is unfit, right? Um, I think I could navigate that. But like, I don't think somebody who is like, hey, buy this book so that you're ready for when I announce for president in a year, like, <laughs> it, it, this would not be the book you would write. Um, this is a book that I made the calculation that my contribution in writing this book to the world and to help people, uh, you know, maybe save their own lives 
was worth it if it precludes me at some point from running for something if I choose to. Well, this is the second time I've talked with you since you made your announcement. And both times, you just seem genuinely happier being out of elective politics. I mean, I know you said that you're not going to completely take away the possibility that you may run for office again. But are you willing to sacrifice whatever peace of mind you have now to get back into the electoral arena? No. And that's one of the things, you know, not to spoil where the book lands, but one of the things I make clear is that America and I are square. I, I, the difference between, between me now and me then is I understand now that I actually have done quite a lot and that I've done enough. I still do things for my country. I still engage in politics. I, you know, I still have a pretty popular political podcast. I still do things as an activist. I'm on you know, the board of Giffords, the board of Let America Vote. I still do those things. But I do them because I want to and not because I think I should or because I think I have to. And I don't do anything so that I can do other things in the future. I just do things that matter to me right now. And if I run for office again, it'll be because I get to a point in my life where I, I come to a place where I, I find that I can serve in office and enjoy my family and my life at the same time because I actually think I've earned that now. And, and here's maybe the most important part of this is that you know, in the last few years since leaving elected office, I am 100% positive that I have made a greater impact on the world than I ever did serving in office. I mean, recently with the work I've done as a volunteer just in Afghan evacuation efforts to get, you know, Afghan allies, you know, well over a thousand uh, people who helped our country out of a living hell in Afghanistan, uh, the stuff I'm doing with Veterans Community Project to help house and, and treat veterans who really need it around the country, including there in St. Louis. Um, and with this book and with advocacy on mental health and frankly, just, you know, as I think just my announcement in and of itself almost four years ago uh, and the way that it helped a lot of people be seen uh, or feel seen, I, I, I am just 100% positive that I've accomplished more in terms of making the world a, a little bit better place out of office than I had in it. And that for me just makes it pretty hard for me to get really motivated to want to go be in office because I don't any longer have this desire to live in the future or outside of myself because I'm enjoying the present. Does the constant demands that you or Claire McCaskill or Jay Nixon run for something speak to a broader problem that the Missouri Democratic bench is not really that robust and they have to turn to all these people that were successful in the past? Uh, yeah, <laughs> because here's the conversation I have somewhat frequently when when people call me about this. I, you know, uh, first, sometimes people will say, like, no, you, you have to <laughs> run. And I and it look, I try and remember that it's really nice to be asked and it's really flattering and that I worked really hard to get to a point where people wanted me to do that kind of thing. Um, and so I try and not say, like, I don't have to do anything, actually. I've done my part because uh, it's not very nice, <laughs> but sometimes it's how I feel. But what I also tell people is, look, um, we need to stop thinking about uh, every election cycle as a search for some sort of savior or turning to, you know, those of us who already have that name recognition and saying, you know, bail us out because that's not sufficient. I mean, if you look at what they've done in other states, if you look at Georgia, if you look at Colorado, if you look at North Carolina, what they did and what Missouri needs to do, and there are people like Laura, Laura Granich and others and Stephen Weber and, and a lot of people who are doing this work and they need, they need to be supported. Um, the work of saying, you know what, we're going to build something for the future and we're not 
you know, look, every election cycle is important, but we're not going to build up and tear down every election cycle. We're going to build an infrastructure that can change the voting dynamics of the state over the next decade plus. And everybody, you know, donors, others who call me about this, I say, look, if you want to make a difference, that's what you need to get involved with. Don't get me wrong, support candidates right now, but you got to stop living every, you know, living and dying by what happens every two years. It's not a long-term strategy for success. That was former Missouri Secretary of State Jason Kander talking with St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum. Kander's new book is Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. And Kander will be at the Jays Merowitz Performing Arts Center next Thursday evening, where he'll talk with Missouri State Senator Jill Shoup. For more information and for an extended version of this interview, visit stlpr.org. And we also want to mention that help is available 24-7. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. Today's episode was produced by Alex Hoyer and Jason Rosenbaum. Audio engineering and editing by Jason. Podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.